Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that Orcus Crisp's short-lived mascot, Just So Joe, thought that girls had to have a low, a low, a low, cars had to have go, man, go, but give him any kind of crisps, he won't make a racket, just so long as it says, walkers on the packet. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, no one has ever seemed to, is writer Gary Bainbridge. Gary, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Currently, I'm chief boss at busstopeditorial.com doing all sorts of writing and and freelance type things cartooning, I do some cartooning yeah, I'm doing all sorts I'm hugely unsuccessful Well, I don't know about that but um, I'm hoping that the bus stop in question isn't the one featured in the start of your first choice which I'm so glad somebody has chosen this because I remember this so fondly let's just have a listen to a clip from it and then we'll talk about it hey, Richie Lee That's amazing, that's my name as well I came about the ad in the paper. Oh, yeah, come on, man, sit down. What's your name? Carlo, John Carlo. Carlo, eh? I bet all your mates call you Boris, don't they? Friends call me John, assholes call me Boris. Igor, bring my friend Boris a glass of your freshest blood. <laughs> you okay? Fine, yeah. Now it says here you want a partner for a mobile soul disco, huh? Guy with a good record collection? Yeah, that's what I see. I reckon the only way I'm going to get a decent job in this town is if I give me one. So I'm setting up my own little business, you know. And um, I've got all the equipment in that, you know, the uh, turntables, the lights, the speakers, the amps, the works. Uh, I've even got a van off a mate of mine. All I need now is the records. OK, I know exactly what that is. That's Screen 2, Coast to Coast from 1987. Gary, what was this? Okay, so Coast to Coast, I mean, it could have been huge. What it was, it was a, a TV movie uh, starring Lenny Henry as a Scouts DJ and uh, John Shea, who played a... Uh, he played Lex Luthor in The New Adventures of Superman. Oh, he did, He yeah. did, yeah. But in this, he was, he was a deserter from the US Air Force and they got together as travelling DJs playing 60s soul. And around 1987, there was a huge resurgence in the popularity of 60s soul. It's based on the Levi's adverts, which you know, have all sorts of, of, uh, of sort of stacks and Motown type music. And they had the likes of Bruce Willis, of all people, doing cover versions of Respect Yourself and Under the Boardwalk. <laughs> so it's fairly huge. And it's got this amazing soundtrack of, you know, 60s soul, which is the problem, and which is why you've never seen it because they were only able to show it twice because the, the soundtrack is so full of 60s soul they can't get the rights to release it on DVD or to repeat it again they had an enormous cast of brilliant character actors you got the likes of Peter Vaughan who played you know, genial Harry Grouse in Porridge <laughs> he plays an, in, an underworld enforcer called the Chiropodist whose specialty is uh, cutting off people's feet Sherry Lungi, Bobby Nutt Paul Bone who was in um, Watching and then Pete Possilthwaite plays a character called Ketz now Pete Possilthwaite actually he's got an okay scouse accent but he lived, he lived in Liverpool for a long time. He worked. For, he was on the um, Liverpool um, Everyman. Um, he was yeah, in their rectory yeah. group. But his Scouse accent is nowhere near as good as Lenny Henry's. No. I love it. It's actually show, shot on location in mostly in Liverpool and the Lake District. But it's during the winter. So everything is grey and horrible. Mm. And Liverpool in the late 80s looked fairly grim anyway. I remember this bit at the beginning on the Magical Mystery yes, Tour Bus. Yes, the Magical Mystery Tour Bus, which had probably only just launched around then. I would have thought so, yeah, maybe about three or four years. Yeah. And they're driving around the Strand, which is the road in Liverpool that runs along the river. And they say, our first stop is going to be Penny Lane. Even then, I'm thinking, you're going the wrong way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're heading to Bootle, mate. Yeah. I, think, I think I've had taxis like you. <laughs> But then, you know, it is authentic to go to, like, the Philharmonic pub. They have the Brahms and Liszt rooms, so they have which are two snugs mm. in the Philharmonic pub. It's OK until you get to the end, where they're supposed to be in a military base in Florida. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, no, that's still the same grey sky. <laughs> but there's a sign that says Florida, so it must yeah, be Florida, it must be. mustn't it? It <laughs> must be. And then they sort of pan away, they sort of move away from this, this scene and the car's driving off and the car's driving on the right hand side of the road because you know they're in America <laughs> it sort of zooms out and you look and you go hang on a second that's Burton Wood in Warrington <laughs> and you can almost see the Ikea you know 
red letter boxes. <laughs> and it's funny because like um, it's like you know they film in Liverpool. They film in Liverpool quite a lot and pretend that it's New York. Yeah. And what they do is they have a few yellow taxis. Yeah. They have a, a fire hydrant outside the Liver Building and stuff. <laughs> but that's slightly bigger budget. This is just a sign that says Florida. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting really because like you say, Lenny Henry is absolutely brilliant in it, and yeah. it, I would say. The, one of the biggest shames about the fact that it's not better known and it's not more widely available is I think it's in inverted commas it was made for TV but it was his best film because he tried to launch himself as a film star around that time it didn't work there were things like there's Bernard and the Genie which is another BBC film which yeah. is good it's good but it's not quite there yeah. and he's really outperformed by Alan Cumming in that I think mm. there's also True Identity oh, which was yes. his, his big Hollywood film which is pretty bad I've got to be honest about that. I have a, an ex-rental VHS of that, which I just keep for, to remind myself to aspire higher in life, really. Is that where he has to pretend to be a white guy? Yes, it is, yeah, yeah. Wow. It does not really go very well, that film. But it's a shame, because Lenny Henry, he gets kind of, like, ridiculed now, but he was absolutely brilliant for so long, because he was fantastic in kids' TV, and yeah. his was in all the other sort of ventures around and he did when he was a Radio 1 DJ for most of the 80s actually on and off he was brilliant and then he moved towards the alternative crowd which is interesting because this was directed by Sandy Johnson who did quite a few comic strip presents films Mm. it was written by as well one of his regular writers Stan Hay who had then created Grunt Zillman which is the Lenny Henry character nobody remembers the time travelling detective but he made then that bid for sort of big stardom and it didn't really work and then a couple of years later I think I think the first substantial thing he did after that was Chef which again nobody remembers now but that was kind of like a a step back like I am a character in sitcom not a step back in terms of a humbling thing but kind of I need to find my feet again and he never quite got back onto that level it's a shame because I loved Lenny Henry Lenny Henry in the 80s was, was easily the best television personality yeah. he did everything he, he could do everything he brought out a CD he did yeah. um, uh, I think it was after um, Coast to Coast because in Coast to Coast mm. he, he sings um, Drift Away with John Shea mm. and he's got a great voice yeah I yeah. say it's a great voice it's, it's a great voice for a comic yeah Coast to Coast is kind of People go on and on, you know, rightly about, you know, BBC one-off dramas in the 60s and ITV in the 60s as well. And that was the golden age, to say. But I think there was a second golden age in the 80s. You get all kinds of things like, like this, like Bernard and Genie, not quite as uplifting, shall we say, but threads. You know, there's all kinds of things around that time. The Black and Blue Lamp, which I loved, where mm. it's the... The one where the characters out with Dixon and Doc Green accidentally run into a modern sort of the Bill style police drama. And there's also Body Contact, which is one of Phil Norman's choices on this, which is that bizarre rock opera. But there was that high quality level of TV drama in the 80s that gets ignored though. And I would say Coast to Coast was one of the best of those. It was absolutely. I mean, I did look up the Makers Gorilla film still mm. exist, and on their website there is basically a page saying, Stop asking us about Coast to Coast we can't get the rights to release it but this is exactly it. it's such it's such a tragedy because mm. it would be it, it would be I, I mean it's, it's definitely worthy of a reappraisal but nobody can see it okay well I don't know what the soul of Fischiardos of the late 80s would have made of your next choice or indeed the record it was based on which in the absence of a proper cliff is what we're going to hear now Okay, that's Steve Silk Hurley with Jack Your Body. The bit that they played, I've specifically chosen this, on Newsround when they reported that nobody could find the artist who was number one in the charts. But it's not actually Jack Your Body itself, because everyone remembers that. Gary, what was deadly boring? In the olden days, you know, before your local radio station was taken over by a Dutch conglomerate, and, mm. you know, and now they all have the same font, the same playlist, and all of that. 
I used to listen to Radio City, which was the didn't commercial, didn't yeah. the commercial station for Liverpool and Merseyside. And you know, in those days, the DJs were like proper local personalities. Yeah, you know, they'd have um, they'd have these cars with the name on and the name of the radio station on. They'd drive around, and everybody knew it was them. It was awful. It must be like Alan Partridge. You know, <laughs> the first newspaper I worked for was in Liverpool. It was a free paper called the Liverpool Champion. Well, the thing is, the editorial car was this white escort or whatever it was I can't remember and had champion your local weekly newspaper written all over it mm. and when we went out on jobs we were supposed to take it out <laughs> <laughs> which is fine most of the time but the thing is there's one day the editor sends me and the photographer mm. down to some wasteland in, um, in Brunswick where a load of travellers are set up camp and says go down there find out how long they're staying so we went down there but instead of going in my car we went in this editorial car so we drive onto this camp site full of caravans in this car saying champion your local weekly newspaper when the car stops before we get out of the car it's surrounded by these burly travellers and they've all got like cudgels and knives and swords and whatever and basically I have no idea how we got away alive I, I, I just assume, you know, that I basically convinced them that we were just incredibly stupid, which, you know, in fairness. Anyway, yeah, so the thing about the Radio City DJs, if they were knocking on a bit, as all DJs were on radio mm. at that point, Jack Your Body went to number one in the chart. But it was the first house music single to get to number one. And the DJs weren't very happy about it. No. Because, you know, these weren't the sort of DJs that you'd get, you know, playing a set in a warehouse. Mm. These are the sort of DJs who'd cut the ribbon at a jumble sale, you know. <laughs> and they're listening to Jack Your Body. And the thing is, if you're standing in some sort of brick-built silo and you're off your face on ecstasy, <laughs> you can really enjoy dancing to Jack Your Body. You might even go and buy it in the shops when mm. you come out and go, oh, I love that song. But if you're sitting in a radio studio <laughs> and you've got Jack Your Body on the playlist in between the Eurythmics and Robert mm. Palmer... <laughs> You're going to think it's absolutely shit. <laughs> so what happened was four DJs at Radio City did their own version of Jack Your Body, which was called Deadly Boring. So instead of going Jack, 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 Jack Your Body, it was Dead, 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 Deadly Boring. <laughs> and they set themselves up as the Boring Boys, and they rapped over the top of it, and it was the most dad thing that anybody yeah. has ever done. But then they brought it out as a single. Did they? Yeah, it did quite well locally. And I think, I think they did it for the Radio City charity, which at the time was called Give a Child a Chance. Yes, yeah. Now, Radio City's version, a smaller version of Children in Need. Yeah, or Health a London Child, which is the one that we always were forced to buy those records by capital DJs for. Well, yeah. this is the thing that confused me. BBC is for all children. Yes. But apparently these other ones are just to help an individual child. Yeah. Which I think, there must be some kid getting 150 grand. <laughs> but no, I, I haven't been able to track down a copy of this thing. No. No. I mean, I've been, I've contacted over the last year, I've contacted two of the DJs mm. who were involved because I want a copy of it. And even they haven't got a copy of it, yeah. which I think is absolutely mad because if I'd made a record, I'd have all the copies. Yeah. I guarantee it. No, because nobody else would have bought them. <laughs> well, I remember that well, but the reason I remember it is, I mean, it's a, I've got to say, it is a reasonably well-known fact that one of the first things I did was wrote some gags and characters for some of the younger Radio City DJs while I was still at school. I was not involved in Deadly Boring. I should make that absolutely clear. In fact, that slightly predates my involvement, but I just want to, that on the record, I was not involved. But I remember thinking that, you know, they were saying Jackie Body was Deadly Boring. Now... What did they consider not deadly boring? Because my memory of Radio City around that time was, you know, you had the younger ones, like like Tony Snell, you know, who was still one of my favourite DJs ever. It was uh, Kev Keaton. They were quite reasonably down with, comparatively, with, you know, new sounds. But there were older guys there, like you say, guys in their late 30s and they're being generous, still with the aviator shades, still with the monogram cars. They kind of, they seem to regard it as an imposition if they had to play anything that was actually in the chart. Even if it was like the way it is by Bruce Hornsby or, you know, the Bangles or something, they would be so begrudging about that. They couldn't wait to get back to playing. I mean, the stuff I remember was they wouldn't let it go with the whole of the moon, the year of the cat, it's all the off the records. <laughs> Sweet Freedom on Michael McDonald was just for years after that was a hit that was on endlessly. Yeah. There was a record that 
Nobody remembers till they hear it. Standing Outside in the Rain by Skipper Wise. But I gather he was actually Dutch. He was a bloke with a huge mullet. And it was like, it was number one in Europe for about a year. It's like this weird soft rock jazz thing with a massive saxophone all over it. They just played that endlessly. They wouldn't give up on the no. fact that it wasn't a hit. They kept <laughs> on and on and on. And uh, it's just this dreadful whining. Wow. It's like a prototype Scully-Dalic thing. Oh, the Glamour Boys by Living Colour, which is actually a good record, but that was their kind of, hey, I like a young person's record. But anything that was new or, you know, innovative or, I hate to say it, American and a bit black, they, yeah. didn't, they didn't take well to at all. No. You know, and parodying rap is a bit... I, I find it very old fogish. I mean, recently it was the top of the pops on BBC Four where it had three awful, awful, I'm going to say this, all awful novelty records making fun of rap and, you know, in a very down their nose sort of way. Yeah, you know, there was yeah. the, the Anfield rap, there was loads of money doing up the house yeah. and pump up the bitter by starting on 45 pints. You know, it was all kind of like saying, look at this silly new music. And people who were listening to local radio wanted to hear that stuff. <laughs> They did not want the year of the cat again, but uh, forgive me, Al Stewart, but you know. <laughs> I'm not massively urban myself. You know, my favourite rap record is, uh, is Rapture by <laughs> Blonde. Yeah. But yeah, I know what you mean. But I mean, I will say in balance that not bigging myself up here, but in amongst the dreadful stuff you got on local radio and the awful comedy that didn't work. There were some people trying to do funny things. I mean, I remember... Forgive me for revealing this, Nelly, but... Do you remember on Tony Snell's evening show, there's a feature called The Fox Box, where it was like... He was he saw himself as a station's John Peel, really, and he played yeah, people the like... Noise. The noise. His show was The Noise, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he played people like The Lars and James long yeah, before yeah. anyone else. Happy Mondays and so on. We had a feature called The Vox Box, where you phone up and, you know leave a message requesting I don't know True Faith by New Order or something yeah. the problem was that a lot of them were just alright Snally lads can you play uh, you know uh, Standing Outside in the Rain by Skipper Wise you know there's nothing to them so there were people that were encouraged to phone up to do silly things I still don't know who the Trump and Fire Brigade Blues Band were but I might know who the brothers were <laughs> as, as in monks as in monks not as, yeah, in, as, yeah. not as in more rap parodies but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tell you, Liverpool, actually, early 90s. Mm. I think it's probably on 1990, Do you remember Toxteth Community Radio? I do, I was on that a couple of times. Yeah. Do you remember Peter Serafino, which had a show on there? I do, yes, yeah, yeah. 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 That's a, a whole weird thing of me and Peter cross paths so many times in those days and didn't actually know each other. It was bizarre. I was in a band with Peter Serafinovich. We were in a band called... The, well, I say I was in a band with Peter Serafinovich. I wasn't in a band. I played with his band. And the two gigs that they played in, that they played, I played... We had two gigs. The first gig was uh, the current Helen Linehan, her 16th birthday. And then we had a gig in the Pink Parrot... In the parrot, in no the way. Parrot, yeah. <laughs> and then we gave up, and the the band split up, and Pete bought out the uh, from the other members of the band uh, the four track, and basically he started using that then to make comedy yeah. tapes, and that's how he started off. You see, there is all this, these things that people were trying that, you know, didn't get... In these days, it's so easy to get anything on the national platform straight away. And those days, you know, like, you were lucky if anyone who could pick up Toxic Community Radio heard yeah. you. you know? exactly. Genuinely, there were so many things I did that... I mean, we mentioned before we started recording that I was on Only Connect the other week, and I've had, you know, people I went to school with that I've not seen since the early 90s have gone back in touch. In those days, there were things that I did that I thought were quite high profile that even my family would say, oh, I didn't realise that was on. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, one of them wasn't deadly boring. They probably were all deadly boring in their own way. Okay, we're moving on to your next choice now, which is deadly boring, but in its own way. Oh, 
Okay, that was a trailer for Supersonic Man. Don't all rush out and see that now. <laughs> Gary, what's going on there? This is probably my vaguest recollection. <laughs> okay, so I was a big superhero geek when I was a kid, and I still am. But you know, it's a very different atmosphere now. I mean, if you'd come to me 15 years ago and say, right, 2019, everyone's going to know who Groot is. Yeah! Everyone's going to know who Thanos is. Yeah. And if I'd be sectioned, if you'd said to me if anyone's going to know who Iron Man is, yeah. I'd gone there, yeah. Well, Shang-Chi is coming up in the film. Shang-Chi. <laughs> my childhood is happening too late in yeah. my life. That's the trouble. Because when I was when I was a kid, you know, all, all you had, you had Superman the movie, mm. you had Wonder Woman and the Hulk on telly, and that was it. Yeah. Yeah, that was absolutely it. But the thing is, Superman the movie was huge. And of course, a lot of people out there wanted a, a bit of that action, but didn't own any of the intellectual properties. <laughs> now, I've never seen Supersonic Man. I've boned up on some of the other things, but I don't want to look at Supersonic Man. <laughs> I know I could find it on YouTube. There'd be something. I know I could find something of it on YouTube, but I don't want to ruin it because I went back and I watched the Spider-Man TV series. I did that. On oh my god! And yeah. it killed it for me. I want Supersonic Man to live in my head. But basically, I, I didn't see it. I didn't see the film. What I saw was a clip on what I suspect was screen test. Right. Yeah. Okay. And all I remember was Supersonic Man sort of flying up some sort of lift shaft and then landing in this sort of white corridor and walking along this white corridor. And it had this sort of real sort of sci-fi look to it, sci-fi vibe, which is very different to the Superman film. Probably a bit like the Krypton scenes in Superman. The Supersonic Man, he had a costume that was basically Superman, except the reds and the blues were reversed. <laughs> but then he also wore a mask, a blue mask, that was like Batman's, and in the head, it's even got the ears. But the thing is, I just, I just don't want to, I, I don't want to see it. Mm. But at the time, I desperately wanted to see it. As I said, I don't know anything about it. But what, for months afterwards, I'd have a look at the the leisure guide and the Liverpool Echo and just sort of scour the cinemas <laughs> to see if it was on there. Was it on at the Roxy? Was it? It wasn't on at the Roxy. No, <laughs> it wasn't even on at the Cinema One Two Three. No. <laughs> now, for, for, for non-Liverpool listeners, the Cinema One Two Three was the weirdest cinema in Liverpool. It was up a load of stairs. They had three screens. Now, one screen they'd show mainstream movies, you know. I think I saw Airplane the first time I saw Airplane right. was at Cinema 1, 2, 3. The other two, they showed, shall we say, uh, Grot. Yes. They showed <laughs> X-rated movies. And I always, well, looking back now, I think I really hope that they didn't swap the screens around. <laughs> but so I've never seen it. You might be able to enlighten me uh, about where the origins of Supersonic Man. Well, but I know nothing. I know about, about its background for two very strange reasons, which are, it's a Spanish film, it's from 1979, and like you say, it's entirely unlicensed, entirely copyright dodging. But it stars Antonio Cantafora, who was in a lot of Mario Barber films, like Baron Blood and Black Killer. So I don't know what he was doing in this as a superhero. I was aware of it because of that. It's also got Cameron Mitchell, who was an American actor. I believe he's being very camp in this. I've not dared watch it myself. And the plot is basically the plot of a Superman film with the names changed. (laughs) That's basically all there is to it. But also... I'm aware of it because one of my great obsessions, just because it's such a bizarre, bewildering world, is the the pre-cert video world. It comes up on this quite a lot, which is before certification for video. And the big companies didn't want to release, you know, their blockbusters and all, because they still made a lot of money selling to TV revivals and so on. You had this weird world where obviously you had the video nasties, the really extreme films and so on, but there was all this weird, cheap stuff that they had to buy in from around the world. And, you know, these things that... There are films that have never resurfaced anywhere, like favourite of good friend of the podcast, Ben Baker, The Legend of Hillbilly John, which apparently is... We're obsessed with it because it's worth about £5,000 second-hand of VHS now. Who's going to pay that much for VHS? But this was released by the brilliant Interaction, who, as far as I'm aware, all they did was put out films called things like Black Dragon Revengers Bruce Lee, 
Exit the Dragon Enter the Tiger, Bruce Lee against Superman, Bruce Lee against Iron Hand, all of which starred a guy called Bruce Lee. Now, do you think, do you notice something about that? I, I'm not... I remember Bruce Lee dying a little yeah, earlier yeah. than that. His, his surname's spelled L-I, you see. No. Yeah, this fits exactly. This is exactly the sort of rubbish that labels should have put out. And yet people probably rented this endlessly wow. because there was so little other choice. Of course. Lots of people probably saw this and should never have seen it, just no. for quality reasons. <laughs> I'm really sorry I didn't see it, no. <laughs> but you also mentioned, we'll just uh, slot this in here, because it's kind of like in the same universe... Sort of. The Odyssey Book and Tape Adventures presentation of the War of the Worlds. Oh my god, right. Okay. It's about 1980, three channels on the telly, no computer, we haven't got a video yet. All I've got is comics and books. I can't go to the pictures, you know, because I'm a kid. I need to make this, you know, clear. I am a kid, I'm eight years old. I practically wore out my copy of Odyssey's War of the Worlds. Now, you see, Odyssey was the nearest you could get at that point to a multimedia experience. What it was, it was a little full-colour illustrated book. It's only about 16 pages and only a small amount of text on each page. And there was a cassette tape. And on this tape was a half-hour sci-fi audio play with special effects and a synthesized soundtrack. It's very like what Dirk Max was doing in the in the early 90s. Yeah. But on a much lower budget <laughs> And what you'd do is you'd look at the pictures in the book mm. and you'd listen to the tape and every so often the tape would go and you'd have to turn over a page. I couldn't get enough of them. I mean, I, mm. I ended up getting enough of them. They made six, I bought six. I got them from, I don't know, Woolworths or Great Homer Street Market or whatever. But the best one was an adaptation of War of the Worlds. But the thing is, because, you know, Odyssey are American, they can't set it in 19th century England, because, you know, that'd be mm. mad, wouldn't it? No, they have to set it in America. And they have to set it in the 21st century, in the far-off year of 2015. <laughs> now, it is, it's very, very easy to mock predictions of the future. Yes, yes, it oh, is. Oh, <laughs> boy, they, they did not do very well. <laughs> so it's not, it's, not so much, it's not so much a technology. Although, you know, I'm looking, out at, I'm looking out at a street now, and there are cars going past, and they've all got four wheels, and they look like cars. What they don't look like are eggs with one wheel. But apparently that's what we're driving in 2015. And we don't actually have a fleet of spaceships that are stationed around Saturn. It just didn't work out that way. But it's not so much that, it's the sexual politics. Okay. So your main, your main characters, right, you, you've got a geography teacher who is, I'll say charitably, as we did before, in his late 30s. <laughs> and there's a younger teacher, and she's in her early 20s. And he's driving along in his egg. So, you know, gets out of his car to help her. And he recognises someone she, he used to teach. And he goes, come back to my place. I'll sort you out. And she's, okay. she gets in the car. And they're flirting like mad. And she's, she's saying, oh, you have a big crush on you. you know? And I, I did listen to this on YouTube. And it's incredibly creepy. Anyway, they do get back to his place. You know, just before the Martians attack. Well, they're not actually Martians, because, you know, this is after 1976, and, you know, it was a Martians, it'd be silly, you know. <laughs> and he introduces her to his robotic wife, Millie. Now, Millie is basically Robbie the robot in a pinny. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, oh, you know, she does all the things a wife does, mm. you know, cooking, cleaning, laundry. And then he says to her, well, of course, not everything a wife does. And I'm thinking, what the hell, mate? I'm eight years old. Yeah. Not only that, but you brought back this girl that you... You were old enough to be this. Yeah. At least this girl's older brother. How business. on earth did that get him? What, to me, as far as I'm concerned, is a children's book. Do you think it's it was a script from something else that, like, a national public radio thing or something, that they just bought in? No, it's absolutely it's absolutely original. The guy who, who narrates it is the guy who owns Odyssey. He'd have to feel for, you know, there were probably loads of kids, because I looked up, it apparently it came out in 1978. There were probably loads of kids who... You know, at her Forever Autumn, they'd seen Justin Hayward on the Kenny Everett show previewing the Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds album. They probably thought, I want that War of the Worlds album. Christmas Day, they get given this and say, look, it's better. You can look at the pictures as well. Imagine, oh imagine that. The disappointment, it's just... <laughs> it, it doesn't bear thinking about it. I, I, it it's all, but these things, they had loads. And they, had, they, had one, they had one story called The Rebels of Imperia. I want you to try and guess... 
1978, what that might have been a total oh, rip off of. Could it have been Battlestar Galactica? Stunning, stunning work. Well done, the Americans. Right, okay, well, staying in illustration land vaguely for your next choice, which I'd forgotten existed until you brought him up. There's nothing I can really use as a clip here, so here's something that I hope people don't take offence at how contrived this is. Best by Vashti Bunyan for the <laughs> extremely, extremely expensive second-hand 1970 album Just Another Diamond Day. Listen to that if you get a chance. I'm not going to suggest really that you should read Gary's next choice if you get a chance, but Gary, limp along Leslie. Okay, so let's go back to 1981. Big year for me. I was nine. Nine. Not, not a big year for extremely rare folk albums, though. No, absolutely not. So my cousin owned a newsagent on Penny Lane and my mum started working there a couple of afternoons in the week and I used to get comics at the time. I get DC comics from the other newsagents on Penny Lane and I get, you know, whatever the British Spider-Man comic was at that point. I think it was probably Spider-Man and Hulk Weekly. But then one day my mum came home from work with this, this new comic called Buddy. Now it had, it had some sort of free gift on the front, so the sort that would be absolutely banned these days, like, I don't know, like a, a spud gun. I remember a... it was Buddy's Pop Pistol. Which was was a, I had that, it was a plastic gun with a little flimsy plastic sort of stopper that you put in it and it popped out. And that worked for about three times before it fell off. Well, yeah. it's perfect, you know. <laughs> I, I think in the second issue they had some sort of razor boomerang, I don't know. <laughs> the point is, I think what she's trying to do, she's trying to wean me off the superheroes mm. and sort of get me onto healthier things like yeah. football or, I don't know, whittling wood or, I don't know, I don't understand these sort of things. The thing is, Buddy was by DC Thompson, so it was all like revamps and reboots of DC Thompson um, strips, mm. including um, Billy the Cat from yeah. The Dandy. That totally hooked me in because, you know, I don't know if you know Billy the Cat, but Billy the Cat is a superhero. His parents are killed in a car crash and uh, he goes to live with his auntie and I've no idea what made him think he could be a superhero I think he's actually quite acrobatic but yeah. I've no idea how that helps you against a gun or, no. or, or a knife or, <laughs> yeah. or gas or anything really but there you go but I do remember him from Dandy because in the Dandy he had um, a sidekick who was his sister called Katie Kate. yeah. now Katie did not appear in the buddy strip because Buddy was you know for boys and yeah. obviously you couldn't have a girl you couldn't have a girl in a boys comic because you know, the micro up homosexual. Heaven forbid. <laughs> <laughs> so I've no idea what happened to her canonically. So I understand why they dropped her. But the thing is, my favourite strip in there was Limp Along Leslie. Now the thing about Leslie was his parents were killed in a car crash and he wrecked his leg and he became what we used to call a cripple. We don't call him that these days because we're actually nice human beings. But then, even though he was crippled, he went on to become a footballer. And now, I know what you're thinking. How much potential have we lost because we started insisting the parents wear seatbelts in cars? <laughs> it's one way of looking at it. <laughs> but the reason he was such a good footballer was because he had a gammy leg, which meant that uh, he could do like all sorts of banana shots. So he could bend it like Beckham before Beckham could. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't matter that, you know, he, as he's running along the pitch, he's dragging a caliper behind <laughs> But the thing is, you think to yourself, well, that's great. That's mm. great, Gary. I can understand why you're into that. And I would say to you, no, because it was better than that. It was much better than that. Because not only was he a footballer, he was also a part-time farmer. How did that help his footballer? And he had a dog like Black Bob. And so it was great for the writers, because mm. they'd go, well... If they couldn't work out how to get him to win a game by yeah. you know, by scoring from the corner flag, they just shove his sheep on top of a mountain <laughs> and put them in sort of all sorts of mortal peril. <laughs> well, I only faintly remember the buddy because I remember not liking it that much because I had to think about 
I used to feel this was very, very unfair that boys comics tended to be, you know, square jawed and improving, which wasn't what I really wanted. Because you know, in this as well there was a there's deep sea Danny's iron fish. Absolutely. A boy with a sort of stingray shaped submersible. Yeah. There was Tuffy, the homeless boy, who was tr- trying to avoid people finding out he was living on the streets, which probably his parents died in a car crash. There was Hammer who fought Vikings, so I think his parents might have been killed by Vikings. Or they might have died in longboat crash. <laughs> Billy the cat, obviously. I remember the Wolf of Kabul was in there, which is stripped yeah. of not away with these days. Absolutely I mean, not. We're, as kids, we loved that because we didn't know any better. But for anyone who doesn't know, it was an Englishman who disguised himself with a turban and is assisted by a sort of kung fu, literal Chinese Batman who used yeah. to say clicky bar wielding his cricket bar but it was all too straight laced for me and I used to feel that when there were boys comics that actually reflected what I liked like I was a bit too young for action I remember 2008 coming out Eagle Scream everything like that I looked they were the ones that immediately people would try to ban they would say they were too you know they were too extreme too horrific too violent and yeah because I had so many sisters girls comics were everywhere girls comics had everything you wanted in demonic possessions ritual murders you read no, Misty like, Misty uh, was absolutely terrifying girls having romantic adventures as well yeah. it was, um, nobody said anything about them nobody tried to stop any of that I used to think that was so unfair nobody cares about boys that's the <laughs> to weigh it against you know all the male privilege that there is in the world <laughs> but yeah and I let's be honest with you, I used to get to read those comics anyway but yeah, it's just yeah. the fact that people were always trying to ban all this stuff and it was never explained what the ban would actually constitute as well but how would you ban 2018 to go underground and they have to sell you like Judge Dredd under the counter and... probably like the way they used to do with this in our price oh, yeah. <laughs> it's almost literally under the counter but Limp Along Leslie has not registered with me at all probably because they think oh god he's having struggles and it's football <laughs> why is the talking computer on the 13th floor of this building <laughs> trying to kill him ok well I've got absolutely no way of getting into your next choice but I do think on the basis of what I'm able to find out about this one this might be the shortest choice on what's familiar ever Ali Campbell's 1995 hit That Look In Your Eye but we're more interested in the co-vocalist on this Gary who was Pamela Starks do you even know this is a really interesting thing you see I was trying to think of songs that I hadn't heard of for years Mm. and the one that came to mind was That Look In Your Eyes by Ali Campbell Mm. featuring Pamela Starks which was a number five hit in 1995 Mm. and then just disappeared yeah and it's got the weirdest video so you've got Ali Campbell and he's in a desert and then you've got Pamela Starks in some sort of, I don't know, some sort of lush green pasture. Yeah, apparently cosplaying of Mariette from Darling Buds of May. Absolutely. Yeah. And then as the video progresses, they sort of move closer to each other. And, you know, you get, like, bits of sand are sort of snaking towards her, and bits of grass are sort of going towards him, you know. And, uh, honestly, you don't need to be a Freudian to work out what's going on. <laughs> the thing is, Pamela is absolutely stunning in that sort of late 90s late night Friday movie on Channel 5 kind of way <laughs> what erotic thriller starring Shannon Tweed as it always said that was the only billing they had <laughs> essentially TV listeners people hated Channel 5 at first and a number of things just had puppet fun under yes. them <laughs> but the thing is you know it's Ali Campbell well you know what Ali Campbell looks I mean 
people who don't know what Ali Campbell looks like is if you imagine Madame Tussauds made an attempt at Mick Hucknell you, know, you watch the video and you think well fair play Ali you know you've, uh, I can see what you're doing there and good luck with it because yeah. <laughs> you know it's a, bit, it's a bit sort of Adrian Charles and Christine Bleakley but then I did the research and I had a look at UB40's autobiography and yes they were shocking for a while that's literally the only piece of information I can find yeah, on Pamela Stark there is nothing out there she's not even the first Pamela Stark on, on Google or on IMDB yeah, yeah. I don't understand it she's just like falling down the back of the internet yeah. I don't understand how you can be how you can, how you can be you know, so successful in 1995 and then just vanish well, I mean, it doesn't ex- quite explain her complete disappearance, but I do have a theory about why this record's so forgotten, because I have no memory of it at all. Mm. But I do think 1995, and I've got an example that backs this up, regardless of your own feelings on Blur and Oasis and Britpop and so on, that was what dominated that year. That's what history was going to remember. Everything else was kind of a sideshow. And I say that in full knowledge that you know there were lots of people making great records. But the thing I'll always point to is Stillness in Time by Jamiroquai number two for several weeks massive all over the radio and yet nobody remembers it to the extent that recently when there was a top 40 singles by Jamiroquai category on Pointless I jokingly said stillness in time and it was Pointless it was that big a hit and people forgot it just because of what was going on at the time and I think that happened to poor old Ali Campbell but why did she? Why did Pamela disappear so completely? I don't know. I mean, we, you know, Ali Campbell went back to UB40. He's fine. He's doing reggae. He's, but, you know, Pamela Starks, you look in Google, you look for Pamela Starks. Singer Pamela Starks, you find. That's mm. where, that gets you to um, UB40 or something. Yeah. Everything else is just pictures of her from that video and nothing else. I'm not yeah. saying I'm looking for pictures of yeah. Pamela Starks. I want to make that absolutely clear. But I'm trying to find something. Yeah. I know nothing. I even looked on the UB40 fan forum where somebody sort of dressed a hide as anyone know who she was or what happened to her and all the advice was just being like lol new poster welcome to the forum mate thumbs up and that's all it is nobody's answered it I wonder if it was like there was that guy from the 80s Peebo Bryson who only seemed to do duets with people that seemed to be his, his sole existence I remember a couple of years ago being on the train coming back from Liverpool Central to go and see my parents there was a poster on the train for David Guest's Soul Spectacular at the Royal Court wow. and he had you know ex-members of all kinds of but fair play to me he pulled out all the stops getting former temptations and so on it said you know like the names of their songs after the, the names in brackets and it said Peebo Bryson brackets duets <laughs> was she kind of like a, a Peebo Bryson figure who only did one duet <laughs> Hebo Bryson though does he have to sing both parts <laughs> yeah he must do yeah tonight I celebrate my love for me it's not going to listen to a weird falsetto <laughs> but yeah that this, I have nothing much more to say because there's nothing I know about her well, this is very disappointing Tim <laughs> If anyone out there does know anything, please let us know and get us a copy of Orion while you're at it, if you listen to the Mid-Pen show. <laughs> okay, well, something that I've managed to find out a bit more about, and I actually did remember this time, is your next choice. Unfortunately, there's no clips from the actual show itself out there, so here's a clip from the sequel show, and we'll talk about the original one in a second. Oh, boys, what you reading? New book, Harry. What's it about? It's called How to Do Magic. Oh, that's good, isn't it? Do you know, you can make people disappear with this book. Yeah, how to do that? Well, what you have to do is you close your eyes and I'll say the magic words and Steve will disappear. All right. All right, Gordon. CBTV is the show for me. Oh, it's Gordon. It's amazing, isn't it? Okay, that was H, the security guard from CBTV. One of my favourite programmes when I was a kid, but it wasn't always CBTV. It originally started its Ace Reports, and Gary, I believe, had an annual of it, which I didn't even know existed. Well, this is this is it. I mean, Ace Reports, obviously. Uh, I think what happened with Ace Reports was that it was it was presented by a guy called Wayne Larrier, who played uh, Johnny on Pipkins when I was tiny. Yeah, he was also in the Bugaloos, that weird American series with all got wings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. He presented this. It was Sharon Davis, the swimmer, yeah. Brian J- uh, Brian Jacks, the uh, judo. Uh, yeah. Player. I don't know, what do you call Judas? Judas. Judas, that'll do. Let's call him a Judas. And then there was Bob Goody, who was on from Smith and Goody, which was Mel Smith's less popular double act. Not with me, I love <laughs> Smith and Goody. The number of people you will find if you just Google Smith and Goody begging to see clips of Smith and Goody. 
and there was so much excitement when this is going to sound wrong when I say there's so much excitement when Mel Smith died but there was a tribute programme on Speak to One I remember Twitter just being a buzz with people saying are they going to show a bit of Smith and Goody and they did uh, and everyone was so happy but yeah there was also Tommy Boyd because I think I think Ace Reports was a replacement for Magpie which was very it, suddenly pulled it was yeah and they inherited Tommy Boyd who was like the young one on Magpie that's right. Yeah. Tommy Boyd t- sort, of, sort of fetched up everywhere, didn't he? Yeah. He ended up on the Wide Awake Club. Or he all had sorts a of serious things. news quiz on Children's Eye TV at he one did, point. Didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, 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 that's What's happening? That's it, what's happening? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. Anyway, so that was, that was Ace Reports. Anyway, in an act of absolute arrogance, they brought out the 1981 Ace Reports annual. The thing is, there's a reason. The second and third films in a series are called like two and three. Yeah. But you don't call the first one one. No. I mean, there's no film called Superman One or Jaws One. <laughs> the thing is, if it's not successful, they don't do another one. This one was bought for me for Christmas and I remember it quite vividly. And I think that's because, in retrospect, it was incredibly boring. You know, you watch like an old episode of Blue Peter and, and it's 25 minutes of John Noakes going around yeah. the factory finding out how to make buckets. Mm. And you, you look at it and you think, it can't possibly have been this dull when I was a kid. <laughs> but turns out it was. It's an entire book of this. So, I mean, it's got it all. It's got fitness with Brian Jacks, you know, the, the, yeah. the Judith. And it's literally a picture of him up in the corner and then eight pictures of people, like cartoons, of people doing... Uh, press-ups and sit-ups <laughs> and that's two pages boxed off yeah. that's a laugh isn't it and then there was a, a piece about being backstage at, um, at the Sweeney Todd musical oh, that's, thinking, that's, that's, that's ideal. riveting that's yeah. in, you know, on one level that's incredibly dull yeah. but on another level a nine year old kid's supposed to be reading about um, mass murdering uh, cannibals yeah. <laughs> I don't know uh, it's a very different time I mean, and there was a spread um, it was Bob Goody uh, explaining how to make pizza. That doesn't sound like it's going to be as exciting as it should be. Well, it's not really. <laughs> I, remember, I remember I had like an, a list of ingredients and it said oregano and then after it's in brackets, brackets it said a herb because <laughs> it was 1981, yeah. nobody had any eye. But yeah, that was it. I mean, it, it turns out that the Ace Reports annual was very inaccurately named because mm. in fact the only thing that was true about it was it contained reports. Yeah. It certainly wasn't Ace. It wasn't an annual. It was scratched. Well, I've seen the few scans that are online. I think you're absolutely right about it looking dull because it seems to me that they they thought because it was it wasn't it was a magazine show, but it, it wasn't really a serious show, which I'll come back to in a minute. But it had long series bits in it. Yeah. I think they thought, well, we'll just make the annual that. Whereas I had, I don't know if you ever had any of the swap shop annuals or swap shop books, as they called them. Uh, no, I was I was I was an ITV lad. I was but, I was Tiswas. Well, the Tiswas Annual is a work of art in itself. <laughs> but the Swap Shop books were really cleverly done because they replicated the way people forget that. I mean, he's done so many bad things since, but it was Noel was the the driving energy behind Swap Shop. He would, when things were getting boring, he would move it onto something else, yeah. or he'd throw in a joke, or he'd chat with one of the cameramen or whatever. And they reflected that in the books because you know we had your serious bits, but they'd be broken up by you know a page of Noel saying, "Here's some fun you can have making John look like Mr. Spark and putting ears on John Craven." <laughs> and then there was because uh, Gordon Murray did some shows like the Goblins and Skip and Buffy for some of the inserts. And obviously, they couldn't have a Hong Kong Fury strip in the yeah. the Swap Shop book, but they did have like photo strip Gordon Murray stories. Right. So it was really, really cleverly done. But this just looks like. The sort of thing that I don't know who gave it to you for Christmas, but it'd be when relatives that you didn't see that often came a couple of days after Christmas, and you already weren't, you didn't have a high bar set for what no, they give you, no. but then they gave you that, and it was even more, things like the Scoop Sports Annual that somebody gave <laughs> yeah. me once. Yeah, you must have loved that. Oh, I, oh, that was riveting. Yeah. The main thing I remember about Ace Reports, yeah. which was why I was saying it wasn't entirely serious, was I can't actually, I don't know if they were in Ace Reports or just CBTV. My memory is this was Ace Reports, but Steve Steele and Jim Sweeney, who were quite bold choices at that point, yeah. they were just coming out with the comic strip in the comedy store. They were associated with, you know, those people who said rude words on Channel 4 sure, late, yeah. I like French swords and so on. They did comedy inserts, and they were always like hoax things. But I remember one week, 
they did the thing about they said if you get a bin lid and cover it in tin foil and plug it into the area socket of your TV and hold it up to the sky, you can get like TV from different channels. Now I've blanked out. I've blanked out what we're showing on the screen because I don't want to remember. The same things like there's American TV. I remember it's like Tommy Boyd and the Stetson. Yeah. Say there's German. I don't want to know what went on. You know, the, oh look, there's Chinese TV now. But I actually don't want to know. But I remember the next week, Tommy Boyd said, yeah. And if you didn't realise that it was a, it's a funny bit last week talking about putting the bin lid in the back of your TV, don't do that, please. Yeah. So I don't know what happened in the intervening week. The must have been an explosion. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, I'm wondering if when you sat down to watch Ace Reports, you might have had a nice long glass of your last choice, which <laughs> I can almost taste this thinking about it. Nothing I can really, again, use as a clip here. So here's a Pepsi advert that has really annoyed me for a very long time. I looked out on the ice today. It was embarrassing. Well, let's face it. You're getting killed out there. Send your app down next Saturday, will you? Hey, coach, what kind of call is this? This ain't Pepsi. It's all you deserve, Penchansky. Let's get back on the ice, guys. Coach, shouldn't you have given them Pepsi? They're awful mad. Exactly. In America, a cola by any other name just isn't the same. Okay, that is all Penchansky deserves, but Gary, it could have been even worse, couldn't it? What was your cola option? Okay, so I went to St. Clair's Catholic Primary School in, in Liverpool, and we had a dinner lady. And um, when I say dinner lady, I don't mean the sort of women who were standing there with, with scoops of mash. I mean like the uh, supervisors, like a dinner supervisor. And her name was Edna Savage. Now, you might be thinking they're named Edna Savage. She's probably a bit strict. Yeah. You know, because you would, you know, it'd be a bit on the nose if it was somebody who was strict. But no, you'd be wrong. She was an absolute fucking monster. <laughs> Everybody was scared of her, even the head teacher. Anyway, one day, she went absolutely apeshit because of these cola tablets. Now, in the late 70s, the early 80s, this, uh, this country had... Um, had a weird obsession with dried drinks. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so you'd get things like uh, Bird's Appeal. And there was Kellogg's Rise and Shine, well, exactly. which in the edition with Melanie Wilkins. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Bear in mind, you know, fresh orange juice in those days, you know, it was, was considered a premium product. Yeah. You'd actually get it as a starter yes. with your meal. Yeah. And, you know, if you're around your mate's house and his mum offered you um, orange juice, she'd mean orange squash. And Bird's Appeal, you know, it was just sachet and God knows what sort of powder and you put it in in a, in a jug and you'd make it and it tastes, it tasted grainy and slightly more like, like pasteurised orange juice than orange squash, but nowhere near pasteurised orange juice. So this is the environment you're in. These cola tablets are actually quite similar. Now, you weren't allowed to bring packed lunch to my school at that time which of course meant that you weren't allowed to bring in drinks. The only type of drink that you could have at lunchtime was basically a, a lukewarm water that was poured from a jug into one of those little uh, Joralettes. Oh, tumblers. the weird shaped tumblers. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. So a bit R5D4 if you turn them upside down. <laughs> exactly, exactly that. These tablets, they're basically um, like cola-flavoured Alka-Seltzer. A lad in juniors one day brought them in. Now, he was, he was a lot more clever. He didn't fill his glass to the top. Because, you see, when you put these tablets in, it's like when you put, like, Mentos mints into a bottle of Diet Coke. Mm. You know, it just explodes everywhere. <laughs> so, you know, everybody saw this sort of, this sort of drink of what can only describe as rank coke and thought it was brilliant so he brought some more in the next day and people bought them and brought them in and you know they filled the glasses up and then dropped the tablets in and there was absolute bedlam it was like a phone party in Ibiza and the thing is God knows what these things are made of yeah because they were, they were unbranded weren't they well yeah they were of course but they stained these Joralettes um, glasses and the thing about these Joralettes glasses they were childproof you could drop yeah. one of those things into a volcano and they'd be okay <laughs> and these things had just been stained purple so this is this is savage she absolutely bawled at us you know, it was like proper hair dry treatment. Mm. I didn't even have any. And she banned them from the school. Not the head. The head didn't ban them. There weren't any letters that went over. She had that much power, she could ban them. Mm. But I think what she must have done straight after that was gone around all of the news agents yeah. around the school. 
and got them to withdraw them from sale because I could never buy one. I've never had one. No, it's the supersonic man of drinks. I remember them existing and you never knew where kids had sourced them from. Almost like, oh. like they're from a dealer or something. They must be. It's like looking for an orange twirl at the moment, which I still haven't found. I, don't, I still don't believe they exist. <laughs> but I never got a chance to drink any of it. And thinking back, probably a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I really don't like the sound of what was in them, but it was a recurrent thing in school that something would be a sensation for a couple of days and then it was banned. I mean, the one I really remember was, I, I probably didn't have a real name, but I just called them those spidery octopus things that rolled down windows. Oh, but, yeah. That's uh, what they're called. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but, yeah. Uh, apparently there was a brand name, but yeah. I refused to countenance it. But it was like, for a couple of days, people were throwing them at school windows and watching them roll down, and then you were told you're not to bring them in again. Because he left a terrible stain, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. He left a proper streak on the window. Fanta yo-yos, although I was about 14 or 15 by that point. I remember everyone still having the Fanta yo-yos that lit up and made noises. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they, they got banned very quickly. But really, when the kids could have caught on to the fact, enjoy these crazes out of school. Because your fame yeah. will be short-lived for introducing them. Nobody will care when somebody finds the next thing. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's what we should do. We should go around to schools, go to schoolyards, <laughs> stick your head through the railing, say, look, you know... <laughs> no, I don't advise doing that. Put <laughs> <laughs> <Put> that down. <laughs> yeah, OK, fair. So did you, did you retain a love of soluble drinks or...? Because it is still quite a novelty, I find. I remember trying to dissolve. Do you remember they brought in LucasAid tablets in the late 80s? Oh, yes. I remember trying to somehow, like, kind of bit like Percy in the Blackadder 2 episode, like, trying to extract purest LucasAid from them, (laughs) grinding it with a mortar and pestle and trying... Heating the water to the optimum temperature, I thought it would like coalesce into Lucas A, but it didn't. It didn't happen. No, you know, you know what? You, you know, you could have actually done just gone to the shop and bought some Lucas A. They don't even sell them in chemists these days. You can get them from. Yeah, shops. but they started using scary words like isotonic in those days. Like you weren't allowed to have them unless you were good at sports. <laughs> Why? How, how did that happen with Lucas A? How is Lucas A rebranded from something that you drank when you were absolutely dying? Mm. something you drank because you were about to run around a track I really don't know I would say that it was probably in the mid 80s that happened wasn't it but I can't even think what they were competing with because there wasn't even a, another drink that went sporty and none of the innovations that anyone else did around that time worked because there was cherry coke first came out in the mid 80s and it right. lasted for a very short time ditto caffeine free coke Yeah. Uh, there was new coke in America which didn't happen well, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories that that was deliberately to relaunch proper coke as good old fashioned like you had in the 70s I suppose there was the Iron Brew repositioning and it went from like comedy Russ Abbott Spotsman bending girders to know the really funny parody adverts. Yeah, but yeah. nothing else really had that kind of, you know, succeeded in that way. It's, it's funny, it's, uh, I was talking about this to a friend of mine the other day. Chocolate bars haven't really haven't really evolved since about 1989. They're all variants on yeah. chocolate bars that existed then. Yeah, including orange ones that you can't find. Well, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, they both had the fuse. The fuse was massive yeah, for about yeah. three minutes. And then they discontinued it yeah. because nobody was buying it anymore. I think uh, there's a, a weird half-life, I think. Of, uh, and there was of also bars. the Maverick Bar, which is really, really weird because it plays such a big part in that sketch in the first series of League of Gentlemen, yes. where the, the Maverick Bar is stolen from Pop Shop. <laughs> and yet, at the time, that felt like a perfect reference. It was that there was yeah. the, the unloved chocolate bar that he would get overexcited about. And now, I'm sure people watching it are thinking, what's a Maverick, what's a Maverick bar? bar? But yeah, yeah, all the innovations they tried just came and went. And exactly. it's, everything did sort of stand still and kind of like, like a chocolate-themed episode of Sapphire and Steel with the clock just moving backwards and forwards on one second. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's the bank crunchy, it's Friday clock, but it's just stuck like that. Yeah. Have you an orange fuse for Johnny Jack? Oh, God, let's not turn this into a Sapphire and Steel quoting festival. Can I just check before we go that that glass of cola you got there is that from a soluble fitting tablet? I'm going to check at the bar. I'll let you know. The glass looks a bit stained to me. Oh well, best of luck. Gary, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thanks.
thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers expert. More details, timworthington.org.